Welcome to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org. This week on the podcast, computer scientists are abuzz over a fast new algorithm for solving one of the central problems in the field. Then, in our second segment, a solitary mathematician has proposed a perplexing proof for the ABC conjecture. At a recent conference dedicated to understanding his work, optimism mixed with bafflement. First, Landmark Algorithm Breaks 30-Year Impasse by Erica Klareich A theoretical computer scientist has presented an algorithm that is being hailed as a breakthrough in mapping the obscure terrain of complexity theory, which explores how hard computational problems are to solve. In November 2015, Laszlo Babai of the University of Chicago announced that he had come up with a new algorithm for the graph isomorphism problem, one of the most tantalizing mysteries in computer science. This new algorithm, Babai says, is vastly more efficient than the previous best algorithm, which had held the record for more than 30 years. His paper became available December 14, 2015, on the scientific preprint site archive.org, and he has also submitted it to the Association for Computing Machinery's 48th Symposium on Theory of Computing. For decades, the graph isomorphism problem has held a special status within complexity theory. While thousands of other computational problems have meekly succumbed to categorization as either hard or easy, graph isomorphism has defied classification. It seems easier than the hard problems, but harder than the easy problems, occupying a sort of no-man's land between these two domains. It is one of the two most famous problems in this strange gray area, said Scott Aronson, a complexity theorist at MIT. Now, he said, it looks as if one of the two may have fallen. Babai's announcement has electrified the theoretical computer science community. If his work proves correct, it will be one of the big results of the decade, if not the last several decades, said Joshua Grochow, a computer scientist at the Santa Fe Institute. Computer scientists use the word graph to refer to a network of nodes with edges connecting some of the nodes. The graph isomorphism question simply asks when two graphs are really the same graph in disguise, because there's a one-to-one correspondence, an isomorphism, between their nodes that preserves the way the nodes are connected. The problem is easy to state, but tricky to solve, since even small graphs can be made to look very different just by moving their nodes around. Now, Babai has taken what appears to be a major step forward in pinning down the problem's difficulty level by setting forth what he asserts is a quasi-polynomial time algorithm to solve it. As Aronson describes it, the algorithm places the problem within the greater metropolitan area of P, the class of problems that can be solved efficiently. While this new work is not the final word on how hard the graph isomorphism problem is, researchers see it as a game-changer. Before his announcement, I don't think anyone, except maybe for him, thought this result was going to happen in the next 10 years, or perhaps even ever, Grochow said. In the last few months of 2015, Babai gave four talks outlining his algorithm. It will take time for his new paper to be thoroughly vetted by other experts, however. 
Babai has declined to speak to the press, writing in an email, The integrity of science requires that new results be subjected to thorough review by expert colleagues before the results are publicized in the media. Other researchers are cautiously hopeful that his proof will pan out. Babai has a sterling record, Aronson said. He's as trustworthy as they come. I think people are pretty optimistic, said Luca Trevisan, a computer scientist at the University of California, Berkeley, after Babai's second talk. Assuming the proof is correct, he said, it's a landmark result. Given two graphs, one way to check whether they are isomorphic is simply to consider every possible way to match up the nodes in one graph with the nodes in the other. But for graphs with n nodes, the number of different matchings is n factorial, which is so much larger than n that this brute force approach is hopelessly impractical for all but the smallest graphs. For graphs with just 10 nodes, for instance, there are already more than 3 million possible matchings to check. And for graphs with 100 nodes, the number of possible matchings far exceeds the estimated number of atoms in the observable universe. Computer scientists generally consider an algorithm to be efficient if its running time can be expressed not as a factorial, but as a polynomial, such as n squared or n cubed. Polynomials grow much more slowly than factorials or exponential functions, such as 2 to the nth power. Problems that have a polynomial time algorithm are said to be in the class P, and over the decades since this class was first proposed, thousands of natural problems in all areas of science and engineering have been shown to belong to it. Computer scientists think of the problem in P as relatively easy, and they think of the thousands of problems in another category, NP-complete, as hard. No one has ever found an efficient algorithm for an NP-complete problem, and most computer scientists believe no one ever will. The question of whether the NP-complete problems are truly harder than the ones in P is the million-dollar P versus NP problem, widely regarded as one of the most important open questions in mathematics. The graph isomorphism problem is neither known to be NP nor known to be NP-complete. Instead, it seems to hover between the two categories. It is one of only a tiny handful of natural problems that occupy this limbo. The only other such problem that's as well known as graph isomorphism is the problem of factoring a number into primes. Lots of people have spent time working on graph isomorphism because it's a very natural, simple-to-state problem. But it's also so mysterious, Grochow said. There are good reasons to suspect that graph isomorphism is not NP-complete. For example, it has a strange property that no NP-complete problem has ever been shown to have. It's possible, in theory, for an all-knowing being, let's call him Merlin, to convince an ordinary person, let's call him Arthur, that two graphs are different without giving away any hints about where the differences lie. This zero-knowledge proof is similar to the way Merlin could convince Arthur that Coke and Pepsi have different formulas, even if Arthur can't taste the difference between them. All Merlin would have to do is take repeated blind taste tests. If he can always correctly identify Coke and Pepsi, Arthur must accept that the two drinks are different. Similarly, if Merlin told Arthur that two graphs are different, Arthur could test this assertion by putting the two graphs behind his back, moving their nodes around so that they looked very different from the way they started, and then showing them to Merlin and asking him which was which. 
If the two graphs are really isomorphic, there's no way Merlin could tell. So if Merlin gets these questions right again and again, Arthur will eventually conclude that the two graphs must be different, even if he can't spot the differences himself. No one has ever found a blind taste test protocol for any NP-complete problem. For that and other reasons, there's a fairly strong consensus among theoretical computer scientists that graph isomorphism is probably not NP-complete. For the reverse question, whether graph isomorphism is in P, the evidence is more mixed. On the one hand, there are practical algorithms for graph isomorphism that can't solve the problem efficiently for every single graph, but that do well on almost any graph you might throw at them, even randomly chosen ones. Computer scientists have to work hard to come up with graphs that trip these algorithms up. On the other hand, graph isomorphism is what computer scientists call a universal problem. Every possible problem about whether two combinatorial structures are isomorphic, for example, the question of whether two different Sudoku puzzles are really the same underlying puzzle, can be recast as a graph isomorphism problem. This means that a fast algorithm for graph isomorphism would solve all these problems at once. Usually, when you have that kind of universality, it implies some kind of hardness, Grochow said. In 2012, William Gassark, a computer scientist at the University of Maryland, College Park, informally polled theoretical computer scientists about the graph isomorphism problem and found that 14 people believed it belongs to P, while six believed that it does not. Before Babai's announcement, many people didn't expect the problem to be resolved anytime soon. I kind of thought maybe it was not in P, or maybe it was, but we wouldn't know in my lifetime, Grochow said. Babai's proposed algorithm doesn't bring graph isomorphism all the way into P, but it comes close. It is a quasi-polynomial, he asserts, which means that for a graph with n nodes, the algorithm's running time is comparable to n raised, not to a constant power, as in a polynomial, but to a power that grows very slowly. The previous best algorithm, which Babai was also involved in creating in 1983 with Eugene Lux, now a professor emeritus at the University of Oregon, ran in sub-exponential time a running time whose distance from quasi-polynomial time is nearly as big as the gulf between exponential time and polynomial time. Babai, who started working on graph isomorphism in 1977, has been chipping away at this problem for about 40 years, Aronson said. Babai's new algorithm starts by taking a small set of nodes in the first graph and virtually painting each one a different color. Then it begins to look for an isomorphism by making an initial guess about which nodes in the second graph might correspond to these nodes. And it paints those nodes the same color as their corresponding nodes in the first graph. The algorithm eventually cycles through all possible guesses. Once the initial guess has been made, it constrains what other nodes may do. For example, a node that is connected to the blue node in the first graph must correspond to a node that is connected to the blue node in the second graph. To keep track of these constraints, the algorithm introduces new colors. It might paint nodes yellow if they are linked to a blue node and a red node, or green if they are connected to a red node and two yellow nodes, and so on. The algorithm keeps introducing more colors until there are no connectivity features left to capture. 
Once the graphs are colored, the algorithm can rule out all matchings that pair nodes of different colors. If the algorithm is lucky, the painting process will divide the graphs into many chunks of different colors, greatly reducing the number of possible isomorphisms the algorithm has to consider. If, instead, most of the nodes end up the same color, Babai has developed a different way to reduce the number of possible isomorphisms, which works except in one case, when the two graphs contain a structure related to a Johnson graph. These are graphs that have so much symmetry that the painting process and Babai's further refinements just don't give enough information to guide the algorithm. In the first of several talks on his new algorithm, on November 10, 2015, Babai called these Johnson graphs a source of just unspeakable misery to computer scientists working on painting schemes for the graph isomorphism problem. But Johnson graphs can be handled fairly easily by other methods. So by showing that these graphs are the only obstacles to his painting scheme, Babai was able to tame them. Babai's approach is a very natural strategy, very clean in some sense, said Janos Simon, a computer scientist at the University of Chicago. It's very likely that it's the correct one, but all mathematicians are cautious. Even though the new algorithm has moved graph isomorphism much closer to P than ever before, Babai speculated in his first talk that the problem may lie just outside its borders, in the suburbs, rather than the city center. That would be the most interesting possibility, Trevisan said, since it would make graph isomorphism the first natural problem to have a quasi-polynomial algorithm, but no polynomial algorithm. It would show that the landscape of complexity theory is much richer than we thought, he said. If this is indeed the case, however, don't expect a proof anytime soon. Proving it would amount to solving the P versus NP problem, since it would mean that graph isomorphism separates the problem in P from the NP-complete problems. Many computer scientists believe, instead, that graph isomorphism is now on a glide path that will eventually send it coasting into P. That is the usual trajectory, Trevisan said, once a quasi-polynomial algorithm has been found. Then again, somehow this problem has surprised people many times, he said. Maybe there's one more surprise coming. Second, Hope Rekindled for Perplexing Proof by Kevin Hartnett In December 2015, the math world turned toward the University of Oxford, looking for signs of progress on a mystery that has gripped the community for three years. The occasion was a conference on the work of Shinichi Mochizuki, a brilliant mathematician at Kyoto University who in August 2012 released four papers that were both difficult to understand and impossible to ignore. He called the work Interuniversal Teichmuller Theory, or IUT Theory, and explained that the papers contained a proof of the ABC conjecture, one of the most spectacular unsolved problems in number theory. Within days, it was clear that Mochizuki's potential proof presented a virtually unprecedented challenge to the mathematical community. Mochizuki had developed IUT theory over a period of nearly 20 years, working in isolation. 
As a mathematician with a track record of solving hard problems and a reputation for careful attention to detail, he had to be taken seriously. Yet his papers were nearly impossible to read. The papers, which ran to more than 500 pages, were written in a novel formalism. It contained many new terms and definitions. Compounding the difficulty, Mochizuki turned down all invitations to lecture on his work outside of Japan. Most mathematicians who attempted to read the papers got nowhere and soon abandoned the effort. For three years, the theory languished. Finally, during the week of December 7th, some of the most prominent mathematicians in the world gathered at the Clay Mathematical Institute at Oxford in the most significant attempt thus far to make sense of what Mochizuki had done. Min Young Kim, a mathematician at Oxford and one of the three organizers of the conference, explained that the attention was overdue. People are getting impatient, including me, including Mochizuki, and it feels like certain people in the mathematical community have a responsibility to do something about this, Kim said. We do owe it to ourselves, and personally, as a friend, I feel like I owe it to Mochizuki as well. The conference featured three days of preliminary lectures and two days of talks on IUT theory, including a culminating lecture on the fourth paper, where the proof of ABC is said to arise. Few entered the week expecting to leave with a complete understanding of Mochizuki's work or a clear verdict on the proof. What they did hope to achieve was a sense of the strength of Mochizuki's work. They wanted to be convinced that the proof contains powerful new ideas that would reward further exploration. For the first three days, those hopes only grew. The ABC conjecture describes the relationship between the three numbers in perhaps the simplest possible equation, a plus b equals c, for positive integers a, b, and c. If those three numbers don't have any factors in common apart from one, then when the product of their distinct prime factors is raised to any fixed exponent larger than one, for example, exponent 1.001, the result is larger than c with only finitely many exceptions. The number of exceptional triples, a, b, c, violating this condition depends on the chosen exponent. The conjecture cuts deep into number theory because it posits an unexpected relationship between addition and multiplication. Given three numbers, there's no obvious reason why the prime factors of a and b would constrain the prime factors of c. Until Mochizuki released his work, little progress had been made towards proving the ABC conjecture since it was proposed in 1985. However, mathematicians understood early on that the conjecture was intertwined with other big problems in mathematics. For instance, a proof of the ABC conjecture would improve on a landmark result in number theory. In 1983, Gerd Faltings, now a director of the Max Planck Institute for Mathematics in Bonn, Germany, proved the Mordell conjecture, which asserts that there are only finitely many rational solutions to certain types of algebraic equations, an advance for which he won the Fields Medal in 1986. Several years later, Noam Elkies of Harvard University demonstrated that a proof of ABC would make it possible to actually find those solutions. Faulting's theorem was a great theorem, but it doesn't give us any way to find the finite solutions, Kim said. So ABC, if it's proved in the right form, would give us a way to improve Faulting's theorem. 
The ABC conjecture is also equivalent to Chespiro's conjecture, which was proposed by the French mathematician Lucien Chespiro in the 1980s. Whereas the ABC conjecture describes an underlying mathematical phenomenon in terms of relationships between integers, Chespiro's conjecture casts that same underlying relationship in terms of elliptic curves, which give a geometric form to the set of all solutions to a type of algebraic equation. The translation from integers to elliptic curves is a common one in mathematics. It makes a conjecture more abstract and more complicated to state, but it also allows mathematicians to bring more techniques to bear on the problem. The strategy worked for Andrew Wiles when he proved Fermat's last theorem in 1994. Rather than working with a famously simple but constraining formulation of the problem, which states that there is no solution in positive integers to the equation a to the nth power plus b to the nth power equals c to the nth power, for any integer value of n greater than 2, he translated it twice over, once into a statement about elliptic curves and then into a statement about another type of mathematical object called Galois representations of elliptic curves. In the land of Galois representations, he was able to generate a proof that he could apply to the original statement of the problem. Mochizuki employed a similar strategy in his work on ABC. Rather than proving ABC directly, he set out to prove Shapiro's conjecture. And to do so, he first encoded all of the relevant information from Shapiro's conjecture in terms of a new class of mathematical objects of his own invention called frobenioids. Before Mochizuki began working on IUT theory, he spent a long time developing a different type of mathematics in pursuit of an ABC proof. He called that line of thought Hodge-Arakelov theory of elliptic curves. It ultimately proved inadequate to the task, but in the process of creating it, he developed the idea of the frobenioid, which is an algebraic structure extracted from a geometric object. To understand how this works, consider a square with the corners labeled A, B, C, and D, with corner A in the lower right and corner B in the upper right. The square can be manipulated in a number of ways that preserve its physical location. For example, it can be rotated by 90 degrees counterclockwise so that the arrangement of the labeled corners, starting from the lower right, ends up as D, A, B, C. Or it can be rotated 180, 270, or 360 degrees, or flipped across either of its diagonals. Each manipulation that preserves its physical location is called a symmetry of the square. All squares have eight such symmetries. To keep track of the different symmetries, mathematicians might impose an algebraic structure on the collection of all ways to label the corners. This structure is called a group. But as the group becomes freed from the geometric constraints of a square, it acquires new symmetries. No set of rigid motions will get you a square that can be labeled A, C, B, D, since in the geometric square, A always has to be adjacent to B. Yet the labels in the group can be arranged any way you want, 24 ways in all. Thus, the algebraic group of the symmetries of the labels actually contains three times as much information as the geometric object that gave rise to it. For geometric objects more complicated than squares, such additional symmetries lead mathematicians to insights that are inaccessible if they use only the original geometry. Frobenioids work in much the same way as the group described above. Instead of a square, they are an algebraic structure extracted from a special kind of elliptic curve. Just as in the example above, frobenioids have symmetries beyond those arising from the original geometric object. 
Mochizuki expressed much of the data from Jaspiro's conjecture, which concerns elliptic curves in terms of frobenioids. Just as Wiles moved from Fermat's last theorem to elliptic curves to Galois representations, Mochizuki worked his way from the ABC conjecture to Jaspiro's conjecture to a problem involving frobenioids, at which point he aimed to use the richer structure of frobenioids to obtain a proof. From Mochizuki's point of view, it's all about looking for a more fundamental reality that lies behind the numbers, Kim said. At each additional level of abstraction, previously hidden relationships come into view. Many more things are related at an abstract level than they are at a concrete level, he said. In presentations at the end of the third day and first thing on the fourth day, Kieran Kedlaya, a number theorist at UC San Diego, explained how Mochizuki intended to use frobenioids in a proof of ABC. His talks clarified a central concept in Mochizuki's method and generated the most significant progress at the conference thus far. Faltings, who was Mochizuki's doctoral advisor, wrote in an email that he found Kedlaya's talks inspiring. Kedlaya's talk was the mathematical high point of the meeting, said Brian Conrad, a number theorist at Stanford University who attended the conference. I wrote to a lot of people on Wednesday evening to say, wow, this thing came up in Kedlaya's talk, so on Thursday we're going to see something very interesting. It wasn't to be. The understanding that Mochizuki had recast ABC in terms of frobenioids was a surprising and intriguing development. By itself, though, it didn't say much about what a final proof would look like. Kedlaya's exposition of frobenioids had provided the assembled mathematicians with their first real sense of how Mochizuki's techniques might circle back to the original formulation of Chispiro's conjecture. The next step was the essential one. To show how the reformulation in terms of frobenioids made it possible to bring genuinely new and powerful techniques to bear on a potential proof. These techniques appear in Mochizuki's four IUT theory papers, which were the subject of the last two days of the conference. The job of explaining those papers fell to Chungpeng Mok of Purdue University and Yuichiro Hoshi and Go Yamashita, both colleagues of Mochizuki's at the Research Institute for Mathematical Sciences at Kyoto University. The three are among a small handful of people who have devoted intense effort to understanding Mochizuki's IUT theory. By all accounts, their talks were impossible to follow. Philippe Wallach, a number theorist at the University of Texas, Austin, attended the conference and posted updates throughout the five days on the social media site Google+. Like Conrad, he went into the Thursday talks anticipating a breakthrough, one that never came. Later that fourth day, he wrote, At the afternoon tea break, everybody was confused. I asked many people and nobody had a clue. Conrad echoes that sentiment, explaining that the talks were a blizzard of technical terms. The reason it fell apart is not meant as a reflection of anything with Mochizuki, he said. I mean, far too much information was thrown at the audience in far too little time. I spoke with every participant there who was not previously involved in this work, and we were all completely and totally lost. The failure of the final talks to communicate how frobenioids are used in IUT theory was partly to be expected, according to some participants. I think there was some hope that we'd be able to follow the trail all the way through to the end, but frankly, the material gets substantially more difficult at that point, Kedlaya said. 
It's not entirely the fault of the speakers who came after me. Kim thinks the trouble with the final talks is due in part to cultural differences. Yamashita and Hoshi are both Japanese. Kim explains that in Japan, mathematicians are more accustomed to dealing with a steady succession of technical definitions and presentations. That was one situation where cultural differences really did play something of a role, Kim said. Many dense slides requiring a good deal of patience and focus. That kind of thing is more acceptable in Japan. People are more used to a dialectic interactive style when you go to a lecture in the U.S. While the conference did not yield an unequivocal outcome, as few people really expected it to do, it did produce real, if incremental, progress. Kedlaya said afterward that he felt motivated to correspond with others who have read more of IUT theory and that he planned to attend the next conference on the topic in July at Kyoto University. I'm not unhappy with the amount of progress that was made, Kedlaya said. We wanted more, but I think it's worth the effort of this community to take at least one more run at this and see if we can get further. Others think the onus remains on Mochizuki to better explain his work. I got the impression that unless Mochizuki himself writes a readable paper, the matter will not be resolved, Falting said by email. Kim is less certain that this step will be necessary. After everyone had left Oxford, he reflected on the confusion the attendees took home with them. As he saw it, it was a good confusion, the kind that develops when you're on your way to learning something. Prior to the workshop, I would say most people who came generally had no idea of what the author was attempting in the IUT papers, he said. Last week, people were still confused, but they had a pretty concrete outline of what the author was trying to do. How does he do it? That was a vague question. Now there are many more questions, but they're much more sophisticated kinds of questions. You're listening to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Leia Alfonso. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.